So, so Demps and I were actually co-workers. Demps worked with CO or Campus Outreach in Brazil. I work on the campus about three miles from here, so I haven't traveled near as far. But the question I get uh, quite often from people in the community, people in the church, they're asking me, Ben, what is it like on campus right now? What's ministry like? How is it interacting with students? And I would say it's very, very different right now. Our, our, our campus, we're not quite in lockdown, but we still have the same goals. Usually this time of year, uh, our goals are to meet uh, just several hundred new freshmen that are coming to West Georgia. We're still trying to do the same thing. It just looks very different. So we used to just bust into the cafeteria and go table to table, handing out flyers, introducing ourselves, high fives, dapping people up, hugging them. Can't do any of that anymore. If you want to go into the cafeteria, you've got to sit six feet apart. You've got to have your mask on. You've got to keep your social distance. Uh, we can't do any large group meetings. Uh, most of our interactions and one-on-ones and small groups are happening outside. So. Each and every week we're trying to dodge and evade COVID because we're working with college students who don't always take the virus too seriously. So it's been a pretty interesting uh, couple weeks. But, but I would say this, it, there, there's some new challenges, some new obstacles, uh, but the gospel is going forth. We, we have seen that although these, these freshmen and new students are more isolated, they're more distanced, they're more hungry uh, for relationships, but also to hear the good news of the gospel. So. So what, what we're doing is we're trying to initiate conversations. Usually it goes like this, where are you from? Uh, what's your major? Where do you live? Just your basic chit-chat type questions. Inevitably, the conversation is gonna take a turn towards spiritual conversations. And usually, the question that I'm asking college students is, what's your spiritual background? Uh, what's your worldview? Did you grow up in church? And almost always I'll ask this question, what do you think it means to be a Christian? Or what do you think the message of Jesus was? And usually, when I sit across the table from a traditional, standard, southern college student, I get a response like this, that God loves me, or that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, or that God saved me uh, through Christ and his death on the cross. And these are all true answers. Right? They're accurate, they're correct, they're true, but they're only partly true. In fact, I believe that these responses are actually incomplete because the whole message of the gospel is this, is that yes, God loves you so that you could extend that love towards other peoples. That yes, Jesus did make a sacrifice for you, but in turn, you should sacrifice your life for others. And yes, you were saved by Christ, but now you get to participate and other people receiving salvation. See, the complete, the true news of the gospel is this, is that we not only receive the grace of God, we also extend that grace towards other people. Now, one of the sayings that we have in campus outreach is this, is that God has saved you with someone else in mind. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, this idea of being sent being engaged in the mission of God. So what do you do? You have a CO takeover, right? You get the campus outreach guys up here talking about missions and evangelism. But here's where we're gonna do it. We're gonna look at a passage in Romans 1. Now Romans has a, um, a lot of times people perceive Romans as being a very tough, doctrinal, theological book of the Bible. If you wanna flex on someone theologically, you go to Romans, right? 
big words like justification, glorification, adoption. So very often we treat Romans as the book of theology. But here's what's really interesting. Uh, really, you can make the case that Romans, is, it's about mission. And it's about Paul enlisting the church in Rome or to be about the business of sending laborers out to the nations, okay? So we're going to spend some time in Romans 1. I'm going to start with Romans 1, 14 through 17. It says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's point number one. Is that not only Paul, but you and I, we are obligated to reach the unreached. We are obligated to reach the unreached. In verse 14, Paul says that I am under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. You've heard that expression before, obligation. Either you're obliged or obligated to someone. What does that mean? It means you should do it, right? There's an expectation. Uh, you owe somebody. Let me give you a couple examples of being obligated. Think about this one. Any of you been on a road trip lately? Probably not too many people, but usually here's what happens. You hop in the minivan, you get in the truck, you decide we're driving to Athens for a ball game, we're going to the lake, and at some point you make a pit stop and the driver hops out to pump the gas. At that point, if you're riding shotgun, you're obligated to do what? To at least offer to give some gas money, right? You gotta kick in five bucks, 10 bucks, right? After lunch, you, get, you might go out to eat, and if you conveniently forgot your wallet, somebody's got to pick up the tab, you are obligated to what? Say, I'll send you some cash, okay? If you're young, I'll Venmo you, right? And so an obligation is simply an expectation. It's something you should do. It's something you got to do. And do you understand what Paul is saying? It's our moral obligation, not just for me, Paul the Apostle, but as believers, those who have received the grace of God to pass it on. Now, just to be clear, this is not simply a duty, this is a delight. Because it would be easy to take this understanding of obligation and simply assume that Paul has to do it, that God is forcing him to do it, that God is twisting his arm. But what does Paul say next? He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, this isn't something I ought to do. This is something I want to do. I don't do this out of duty. I do this out of desire. You, th you can think about it this way. There's a lot of chatter right now that, that we might be having a COVID antidote or vaccine pretty soon. Anybody believe that? I don't know. Okay. A lot of promises being made right now. Okay, but let's say, for example, they figured it out. So the CDC, Fochi and his crew, they actually figured it out, and they've got the vaccine. And so our local government actually comes to you, and they say, guess what? We, have, we, we actually have access to the vaccine, and I am tasking with you to deliver this vaccine to 100 people a day in Carroll County. So that's your quota. That's your job. That's your, that's your duty. 
Every day, I want you pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, delivering this vaccine to 100 people a day. Now, you could say, this is my duty, right? I have to do it. They're forcing me to do it. But more than likely, you would say what? I can't wait, right? I'm eager. And I'm not ashamed to bring this vaccine to every citizen of Carroll County because I've seen the effects of COVID and I've seen how it's wreaked havoc on our bodies and our relationships and, and, and our emotional health. It's brought such division, such turmoil to our county and to our nation. I can't wait all right, to pass this on to everybody. I'm going to tell the good news of this vaccine to everybody I see. If anything, you would say 100 is not enough. Am I right? And so it's the exact same thing. This is, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I got the real antidote. I got the vaccine for our spiritual condition, our spiritual pandemic, and it's called the gospel. Because the gospel is the greatest news in the world because it's the power of salvation. When you preach the gospel, communicate the gospel, speak the gospel, people get saved. Because it's a message of how we as sinful people can be made right with the holy God through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. See, if I were to reword this section and what Paul is trying to say, he's, he's saying this, I am willing to do whatever it takes to share the gospel with people who've never heard of it. In fact, this is also how the book of Romans ends. In Romans 15, 20, Paul says this, I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he's not been named, lest I build on another's foundation. So do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying, I'm not going to settle just to know the gospel. I got to spread the gospel. He's saying, I specifically want to share the gospel with people who've never heard of it. Now, if you were to put Paul in our day and age, and he was like a recent seminary graduate, and we were trying to recruit him to come work for our church, guess what Paul would say? He would say, there's too many churches in Carrollton. I, I got to push out somewhere else. Send me to the unreached. Bump Carrollton. I, I, I'm, I'm going to Bangladesh. I'm going to Oman. I'm going to China. I'm working with the unreached. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, that makes sense in Paul's day, right? I mean, I mean, this is the early church. There wasn't a lot of expansion of the gospel. This gospel movement was in its infancy. But you might be saying to yourself, Ben, are there really people today that this applies to? People who have never heard the good news of the gospel, who don't know about Jesus, who don't have churches and don't have pastors who are preaching each and every Sunday? And the answer is, guess what? It's, it's yes. So not only are we obligated to reach the unreached, point number is two is this, who are the unreached? Who are the unreached? So here's how we're going to unpack it. I'm going to read two pretty technical decisions or definitions right here, and I'm going to put it in my own words. So who are the unreached? Here's our technical definition. It is a group of people that have no indigenous community of believing Christians able to engage people, the people group with church planning, okay? Now, one thing we got to be clear about, we're talking about something called people groups, and this is different than how we think about countries and nations today. People groups, in the biblical language, the Greek word is ethne, okay, ethne, and a people group is similar, simply a group of people 
who share a common culture and common language. Did you get that? An ethne is a group of people who share a common uh, language, but also culture. So this is a little different than how we think about nations and the globe today. Today we think about geopolitical nations. There's about 200 in the world. That's like Canada, Mexico, and India. But in the Bible, okay, they didn't have nations as we think about it today. They had people groups. So whenever you read your Old Testament, you know those, there's those sections of Bible where, where you encounter people groups that you can't pronounce? Usually they end in ite, right? Canaanites, Midianites, Jebusites. These are people groups. And these are people who share a common language and common culture. And do you know this? If we go by that definition, there are 11,000 people groups in the world. Okay? 11,000 people groups in the world. So what happens is that one geopolitical nation could contain hundreds, if not thousands, of actual people groups. I'll give you one specific example. Do you know where the most diverse mile in the United States is? Okay, the most diverse mile. It's actually in northeast Atlanta in Clarkston. Did you know this? Okay, about not even two hours from here. But within the city, within the county of, or the city of Clarkston, it's actually an immigrant and refugee area. There are 145 countries represented and 791 people groups. So if you drove over to Clarkston, you would encounter Nepalese, Cambodians, Iranians, Somalis, Burmese, Bhutanese, Sudanese, and Laotians. Okay, one city, 791 people groups, two hours from Carrollton. Okay, so what are the unreached? Unreached are people groups that don't have a national church. They, They don't have an indigenous church that can reach people with the gospel, so they need outside assistance. In most of these people groups, they are less than 2% Christians. So that means they don't have whatever your favorite spiritual abbreviation is. So you probably love this church and an unreached people group. There's no KCP. You might love your denomination and an unreached people group. There's no PCA. You may love your college ministry and an unreached people group. There's no CO. This is a place where more than likely they've never heard Jesus preached But on top of that, they've never met met a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. The problem is not the lostness of these people. People who inhabit unreached peoples are no more lost than you, uh, your coworkers, your teammates, your family members who don't know Jesus. The problem is not the lostness. You know what the problem is? They don't have access to the gospel. They don't have access to the gospel, and that is the real problem. So how many unreached people groups are there in the world today? Well, I mentioned this earlier. There's about 11,000 people groups in the world. Of those 11,000, 6,500 are unreached. So I'm going to give you some broad numbers right here. Don't tune out. If you look at the world population, there's just south of 7 billion people. Okay, Of those 7 billion, almost 2 billion are unreached. So you guys do the math, okay? Once again, I'm going to give it to you basics, okay, the basics here. That means about one-third of the world population is unreached, okay? One-third of the world population is unreached. I'll give you a quick picture right here. 
About 90% of all unreached people groups are in a part of the world called the 1040 window. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you right now. This is a picture of the 1040 window. You'll see, okay, it's called 1040. That has to do with latitude and longitude, but it covers parts of North Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. 90% of all unreached people groups live right here, on this slide right here. 80% of the most extreme, uh, most extreme uh, financial poverty is also here. So this is a place that lacks spiritual, but also financial resources, okay? This is the 1040 window, okay? So if that's who the unreached are, okay, our next question is, what is it like, okay? I grew up in Carrollton, Georgia. I grew up in the Southeast. I'm having a hard time putting my place, putting myself in the position of someone who was born and raised in this part of the world. So here's the question, what is it like to be unreached? Well, first off, you wouldn't know the truth about who Jesus is. But on top of that, you wouldn't know somebody who actually knows Jesus and actually believes that truth. And so it would probably be a little bit like this. If I were to ask you, for those who are not like history professors at West Georgia, if I bumped into you and said, let's have a conversation about Confucius, right? You would probably say what? Well, I think he was a philosopher. I think he said some, some, you know, some very wise, insightful things, but you wouldn't have much to say, would you? If I said, tell me about Joseph Smith, you might say, I know he has something to do with Mormonism and maybe Salt Lake City, but that's about all I know. Hey, if you were to go, if you were to, go to an unreached part of the world and said, tell me about Jesus, they would probably respond in turn. And here's the sad reality, unless something changes, People who live in these parts of the world more than likely will be born, live, and die without hearing the good news of the gospel. And so this is what Paul actually talks about next in Romans 1. So we're going to keep on reading. We're going to go verse 18 through 23, and Paul is describing the condition of those who are unreached. What is it like to be unreached? Paul says this in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here's what Paul is suggesting in Romans 1, that people who live in unreached parts of the world, they possess a knowledge of God but they suppress the truth. Do you notice this? He says that this knowledge is plain to them, okay? The theological term we would use right here is God's general revelation, the revelation that he makes known to all people. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying there's no such thing as an honest atheist, okay? There's no such thing as an honest atheist. And he gives two reasons. He says, because look, you can look out there, but you can also look in here. 
See, when you look out there, when you look at nature, when you look at creation, the beaches, the lakes, the stars, you see complexity, you see beauty, you see order, and you make a recognition that there's no way this is the result of a random collision of atoms. There's a beautiful creation, so there must be a beautiful creator. Therefore, God exists. But second, you can look in here, and you can say, I know the difference between right and wrong. There's an objective truth. There is such a thing as, as morality, and it's inerrant. It's innate within my soul. And look, if we possess a moral law that is written on our hearts, there must be what? There must be a lawmaker. And so it's Paul is saying the existence of God, the character of God, it's clearly perceived, and therefore we're without excuse. So all people, you and me, reached and unreached, we all naturally have rejected God. And now look, this rejection looks different in different parts of the world. So for example, maybe you grew up in West Africa. This would look like practicing voodoo to please the evil spirits. If you live in India, maybe you would offer incense every day to idols made with your own hands. In Saudi Arabia, you would bow down, bow down five times a day and recite prayers to a false god. In the mountains of Nepal, you would send your firstborn to a monastery to attain Buddhahood. In China, you would probably reject the idea of God altogether, and you would have no concept of the divine. So this looks different in different places, but this also looks different amongst different people. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.14 that the gospel is not only for the Greeks, okay, it's also for the barbar barbarians. It's for the wise, it's for the fools. And so for the Greeks, these were the academics, the philosophers, the college educated. These were like the academic elite. When you think about Greeks, what do you think about? You think about men in flowing togas, long white beards, having philosophical discussions. Okay, these were the wise of the age. But Paul also mentions the barbarians, okay? And these weren't like tribal people in loincloths. These were, were simply ordinary people. The word barbarian is how a Greek would perceive somebody speaking a foreign language. It, it would sound like rambling. It would sound like babbling. It would sound like bar, bar. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you're a barbarian, you're just a regular dude. You're, you're ordinary. You're not the academic elite. You might not even be college educated. You're just an everyday kind of guy. And Paul was saying the gospel's for everybody, whether you're wise, whether you're ordinary. But then he inserts a pretty unlikely category. Did you pick up on this? He says the gospel is also for the Jews. Guess what Paul says right here? He says the gospel is also for the religious people. Now, now this is actually pretty shocking that would, Paul would insert this because most people would assume the Jews already get the gospel, right? Because the gospel is a message about who? A Jewish savior? And the gospel is found where? In Jewish scriptures? And the church was led by who? Jewish men? But the point that Paul is making is this, that the most resistant people to the gospel, they're not in the 1040 window, are they? It's not the unreached. It's actually the religious. It's the Southerners. It's the church people. It's the people in Carrollton, Georgia. It is very possible 
to be religious, to be traditional, and at the same time be resistant to the gospel. The point Paul is making is this, is that we got to preach the whole gospel to the whole world because the gospel is for everybody everywhere. Whether you're Greek, uneducated, wise, foolish, religious, irreligious, reached or unreached, the gospel is for everybody everywhere. And so this looks different, but according to Romans 1, okay, one thing is the same if you've rejected God, okay, that, you, that all people have an awareness of God and have rejected him and therefore stand guilty before God. Now look, I've given this talk, this sermon enough that usually at this point, okay, somebody shoots their hand up or maybe they're just a little too shy and they want to shoot their hand up and they say this, well, Ben, what about the innocent Islander who's on this remote island who hasn't heard the good news of the gospel? Would they go to heaven? What happens to them? And I would say absolutely, no doubt about it. They would go to heaven, but the problem is your question is biased from the jump because that innocent native doesn't exist. Because when the Bible describes our natural condition, it doesn't say we're innocent, it says we're guilty, that we're all without excuse, that we all suppress the truth. And there's no such thing when the Bible describes the condition of the unreached, it doesn't say that there's innocent people in the world waiting to hear the gospel. It says what? There's only guilty people all over the world in Carrollton and the 1040 window, and that's why they need to hear the gospel because we're all guilty. And so brothers and sisters, when we picture Paul putting pen to paper and writing this letter to the church in Rome, remember, he is not writing a theological treatise. Okay, this isn't just seminary lectures. This is a missionary letter. And Paul is in tears, he's getting emotional. He's pounding his fists on the table. And Paul is saying this, yes, the gospel is good news. The gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel is the best news, but it's only good news if it gets there in time, okay? And so I know right now, who, who's getting fired up? Who wants to do something about it? Who wants to hop on a plane and, and fly to the 1040 window? I know there's a little bit of tension in the air right now, and you're wondering, well, Ben, what can I do about it? How can I make a difference? How can I be a part of the solution? Well, here's our next point. How do we reach the unreached? How do we reach the unreached? I'm going to give you four ways. You can go, you can send, you can pray, and you can welcome. Okay, first off, you can go. And here's one thing we got to keep in mind is that sending, well, that's our theme for this morning, this is not unnatural or traumatic for the church. It is actually normal. It is common. It is expected. It's the obligation, right? You can think about, it this, think about it this way. Think about it like parenting or education, okay? What if you were to invite me over to your home, okay, invite my family to your home for a, little, for a little family dinner, okay? And I hope you would do that. We never pass up a free meal, okay? So you invite me to your home, and, and then right before we sit down, we're about to bless the food, you call your kids to come downstairs. And guess who bounds into the dining room, okay? It's your kids, but they're not four, five, or six. They're actually in their 40s and 50s, okay? I, I would probably look to my wife. I wouldn't say anything out loud, but the moment we hopped in the car and drove away, what do you think we'd say? There's something really wrong with this family, okay? There's something dysfunctional. Something has gone wrong here, okay? Let's think about education. 
Okay, Ellie's about to start her first day at Carrollton Pre-K. She's fired up to be a Trojan, right? If you're a true Trojan, we know that tradition never graduates. So what if the principal took that literally and said, nobody's graduating? Okay, so we got 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who just continue their education, and nobody ever walks across that stage. Nobody receives a diploma. You would say what? There's something wrong with this school. Because we know the purpose of parenting is to what? is to raise up a child into an adult and launch them out. And the purpose of a high school is to educate adolescents and lead them towards graduation and bigger and better things. Well, what is the purpose of the church? It's to go and make disciples of all nations. And so if we're, if we're not sending, there's something wrong with our church. Do you get that? Something has gone wrong. And what I want you to see is that sending is as normal as preaching in the church. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, it's the account of the early church when the apostles are leading it. Did you know this? The word apostle, it literally means sent one. So the sent ones actually led the church. And if you want the Cliff Notes version of the book of Acts, here's how it goes. The apostles would parachute into a new city. They start sharing the gospel. People would trust in Jesus. They would disciple them to a point of maturity, and then they would what? They'd do it all over again. They'd multiply. They'd send, rinse, and repeat, do it over and over and over again. Somebody mentioned this earlier, but you know Jesus said this, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Okay? So we don't want to be a church that sends. We want to be a sending church. You understand the difference? It's part of our DNA. It's in the very nature of what we do. And I would just say this, you can ask Demps about this, the greatest need in the world, it's not finances, it's not material resources, it's for leaders, it's for laborers. It's that way today, and it was that way all the way back in Jesus' day. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus is strolling about in what was probably close to an unreached city or unreached town, and Jesus makes this observation. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. So Jesus looks at a city and a village that needs the gospel and says, we need more leaders, okay? And this is part of the history of our church. This is part of the history of CO. Did you know this? Within two years, King's Chapel and Campus Outreach started at West Georgia. And there is almost a 30-year track record of graduates being sent out to the world, to Brazil, but nearly every continent. There's Micah Vickery serving, starting a church in the foothills of the, of the Himalayan mountains in Nepal. There's Jenna Nelson working in an orphanage in India. There's Chase Wyland in New Zealand. There, there's several of our ladies who are waiting for COVID to pass so that they can move to China and teach English and share the gospel, okay? So this has been the history of Campus Outreach and King's Chapel, sending graduates, sending people to the world. Okay, so number two, not only do we go, we can also stay and we can send. So some of us are called to go, to actually hop on an airplane, pack our bags and move, but most of us are probably called to stay. But all of us should feel the weight of reaching the unreached. So it doesn't matter who you, all, who you are, we've all gotta make sacrifices. For the nations, that means giving up your money, your time, could be making friends, 
giving up responsibility. But here's the good news, that there's a principle woven all throughout Scripture that, that whatever you give, you receive more, right? I think Demps mentioned this. So the more I give of myself, the more our church gives up its leaders, the more we give up from our budget or our finances, the more we receive in turn. So we've got to be generous. We've got to trust God. Okay, we also need to pray. Where do we get this from? Matthew 9, 35. Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That means pray with passion, pray with enthusiasm, pray daily, pray consistently. So here's what I encourage you to do. Incorporate this into your family. Read about unreached people groups. Pray for unreached people groups before you eat your dinner, maybe one night a week. A couple good resources will be getting online. You can actually go to a website called The Joshua Project. They can actually send you a daily email that features an unreached people group. And you can just incorporate that into your daily prayer life. There's a great book called Operation World, and it gives the status of global missions. And we actually, within our church, have a missions support team. So if you want specific prayer requests, talk to Pastor Andrew, and he will instruct you on how you can pray for our missionaries. And our final point is this. You can also welcome you can also welcome. So we're not only called to go to the nations, but believe it or not, we can bring the nations into our very own home. You can do this one of a few different ways. First off, you can adopt. You can make someone foreign a permanent part of your family. Uh, they can become your child. They can become your son or your daughter. Uh, we also got a campus just a couple miles from here that brings international students here each and every year. So this year is a little different with covid but usually we have just under 200 international students showing up in Carrollton, Georgia every year. And we, we've had some pretty fruitful Bible studies over the years by members in our church. But you know this, okay, that 80% that of international students that come to the U.S., 80% of them never step foot in the home of an American. And that is actually the experience that they desire the most. So next year, next fall, a year from now, Okay, we can, we can start programs where we adopt international students and get to know them. So let, let me give you one quick example, and then we're going to close it out. Okay, one example of someone all right, who reached the unreached. It was a guy named C.T. Studd in the Cambridge Seven. Okay, C.T. Studd was a Brit. He grew up late 1800s. We got a really blurry picture. Sorry, I'm not very tech savvy. Uh, but C.T. Studd is right in the middle I think he's middle, back row. He doesn't look this way in a picture, but he was actually a student at Cambridge University. He was the son of an aristocrat. He was very wealthy. He was very well-to-do. Uh, he was highly educated because he went to Cambridge, and he was also, as his name would suggest, a stud, okay? He was a stud athlete. He was a cricketer. He was a cricket player. Now, I know that sounds like old and not very athletic, but back in those days, okay, being a cricketer was like an NBA or NFL player. And he was actually converted as a college student under the teaching of D.L. Moody. And not only did he embrace the message of the gospel, but he embraced the mission of the gospel. And he said, he was fond of saying this, he would say, he would say cricket until ordained or sent out to the nations. And so he was actually on the British or the English cricket team he was one of the best players in the country, best players in the world. And the moment he graduated from Cambridge, 
he went on a speaking tour with six of his teammates, and they recruited college students to move to China with Hudson Taylor and participate in evangelizing the unreached, okay? This would be like Joe Burrow, okay, after winning the national championship for the LSU Tigers saying, myself and six of my teammates, we're going to avoid the NFL and we're going overseas, okay? That's the decision these men made. C.T. Studd said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church bells, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And so he went to the unreached. In 1885, he boarded a boat to China, and that's where he spent a majority of the rest of his life. The point is this, is that God's plan to reach the unreached demands the sacrifice of his people. We are plan A, and there's no plan B. We got to send, we got to reach the unreached. And so, yes, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have received the grace of God, but that grace has a goal, and it's to reach the nations. And you've experienced the mercy of Jesus, but that mercy involves a mission, and that mission is to send leaders to the unreached. And this is a great mission, and at the end of Scripture, we're, giving a great, we're given a great vision in the book of Revelations. Revelations 5.9 says this, it gives us a, peak, a picture of the saints gathered around Jesus Christ singing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. Now, let me just say this as we close. There tends to be a caricature and a stereotype in our nation of what a typical Christian looks like, Right? And generally the way our media or society portrays it, it's an old, white, stodgy, Republican male. But here's what's really interesting. If you look at the data and you look at Scripture, that could not be farther from the truth. Did you know this? The Bible says that in the new heavens, new earth, who will be represented? Okay, not just one race, not just one gender, but people from every, not most, not a majority, but every tribe, every language, and every people. Every people group will be there. Every culture, every language that has ever been spoken will be present in the new heavens. Recently, I heard a pastor put it this way, that heaven will be a white supremacist hell. The point is this. If you're prejudiced, if you're racist, if you're nationalistic, heaven ain't the place for you because it will be a place of perfect diversity and perfect unity. And the numbers would actually bear this out. Because if you have this perspective that Christianity is a white man's religion, you don't understand the gospel work that is going on around the globe. In fact, if, you, if I were able to project a picture of what a typical Christian looks like from a global perspective, guess what she would look like? An African woman or a South American woman. Did you know this? That, that roughly 20% of the global church is in Africa, is in, in just about every continent, excluding Antarctica. I think you get why. But 20% of the global church is in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, South America, and North America. Every other major world religion, 80% of its adherents are in one continent. Statistically, Christianity has no dominant culture. It is today the most diverse religious movement on earth. 
And you want to know why? Revelations 5.9 gives us the reason why. Because Jesus, the Lamb, has ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The word ransom means to purchase, to exchange his life. In other words, Revelations 5.9 is saying this, is that Jesus died for all 11,000 people groups. And Jesus has already ransomed men and women from from the 6,500 unreached people groups in our world today. And the point is this, what Jesus has already done for the world, what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross, what Jesus did on behalf of the unreached, it has to be made known to the world. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we must send and we must go. Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that, that, that if we have received your grace and put your faith, put our faith in you, we are part of the most diverse movement that this world knows. We're also part of the greatest mission. There's nothing bigger, there's nothing more diverse, there's nothing more multi-ethnic or multicultural. I thank you that what you call us and involve us in is truly to change the world. Jesus, we thank you for giving up, exchanging your life to reach the unreached. Lord, I pray that King's Chapel, we would not be a church that occasionally sends out a graduate, but we would be a sending church. And that every brother and sister in this church would be involved in reaching the unreached. That we would give our money, we would give our time, give up our dining room, give up our lives to move to different places in the world to take the good news of the gospel. So, Lord, would you strengthen us as we participate in your supper, and would we be, would we be about your mission in the world? Amen.